Hello and welcome to the Sporting History Podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. Regular listeners may recognise the dulcet tones of Mrs Woof. Uh, Mrs Woof is helping me edit the podcast this week. This week, it's another podcast takeover with Connor Heffernan, the post-grad and early career rep for the BSSH, interviewing Ryan Murther of the University of Texas in Austin. Ryan is a PhD candidate in physical culture and sports studies at the H.J. Lutcher Stark Centre for Physical Culture and Sports of the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education. Did it again. Connor talks to Ryan about his research into the history of sports and the Olympics, particularly the Tlatel Loco massacre in the run-up to the 1968 Mexico Olympics. Ryan and Connor also discuss the rise of lifestyle sports, both as a historical phenomenon during the development of a consumer society in post-war America, but also as a new discipline within sports history. In particular, they talk about the strange intersection of plastic and counterculture that produced the frisbee boom of the 1960s, and also the development of weightlifting in the US. So join me and Mrs. Woof in uh, listening to how Connor got along with Ryan. Hi everyone and welcome to another uh, sport and history podcast from the United States, the University of Texas. So I'm Connor Heffernan, I have the great honour of sitting down with Ryan Murta, one of the graduate students at the University of Texas. So I will start by asking Ryan to introduce himself and why he chose the University of Texas to study at. Sure. Um, so uh, I'm Ryan. I'm really happy to be here. Um, I, so I'm from Philadelphia. I did my undergrad um, up there in history and economics and then um, didn't really know sort of what I wanted to do as I was, you know, matriculating. Um, I got involved in the athletic department there, um, decided that I wanted to be an athletic administrator. Um, and so I came down to UT to get my master's in sport management. Um, but then once I got here, I realized I sort of hated that. And so, um, you know, I was uh, doing some research. I was working on a paper with um, Dr. Tolga Uzerchu, um, and I was like enjoying the research process and, and all that. Um, so I figured I would, you know, stick around for and another few years. The paper at Tolga, that resulted in your first presentation at a sport history conference isn't that right yeah um so that was a paper on sort of the rise of backyard swimming pools in the 1950s and 60s um and yeah that was the first thing that i um took to nash um so i presented there in 2017 and have been back um every year since and you've been a kind of hybrid in terms of your research interests, you've also worked on Mexico and the Olympics, and then this what is this year you worked on Dave Willoughby, an American strength and physical culturist. So maybe start with how you pivot from backyard swimming fields to Mexico to American forerunning bodybuilding coaches. Sure. Um, so I think, yeah, hybrid's like a really polite way to say that I, I don't know where I'm going. I call myself a <laughs> mongrel, if that's any... I like that. Like a lovable tramp. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I guess um, there are some sort of like temporal connections where it's um, a lot of my research, including what I'm going to be doing at Nash's upcoming year, um, it's all like post-World War II... American culture stuff um, 
there the I suppose there wasn't much of a connection between the swimming pools and then Mexico City other than that it was both like very heavily 1960s based um but I suppose that was more the um sources that we had on hand like mm-hmm. here at the Stark Center we had all the interviews from the 68 team um that no one had really used and so I thought that was sort of you know a good opportunity to make use of that um but um yeah no not much connection between uh the swimming and the um the massacres well i think like from reading your work and from sitting in at your presentations a lot of what you're as an outsider seem to be interested in is that question of like identity and how sport plays a formative role in either personal or state identity is that a complete misreading of how you approach sport no, history or I, that... I think that's good i um yeah i guess it's because it's I feel like for a lot of us, it's not, like, the sport itself that we're, like, really interested in. It's, like, mm-hmm. using sport as a lens to study whatever else. And for me, I guess that whatever else is um, political and social movements. Um, so with the swimming pool paper, what it really was was a paper about um, suburbanization and about the privatization of leisure practices mm-hmm. um, and things like that. And then... Obviously, with the um, 68 paper, um, the massacre at Tlatelolco, that was about, um, you know, it wasn't really about the Olympics. It was about how the Olympics um, sort of played a role in the cover up of the demise of the student movement in Mexico City. And now you seem to be pivoting somewhat back towards kind of lifestyle sports i mean the backyard swimming pools even dave willoughby who's the bodybuilder and physical culturist that is a lifestyle sport and a broad sort of umbrella so to my ignorance i think lifestyle sports is kind of one of those terms that hasn't truly hit the uk yet so maybe can you explain what lifestyle sports are to people back home in britain and ireland then where you've kind of delved into that Sure. Um, well, lifestyle sports, it's, um, it's sort of an amorphous group, but it's basically anything that um, if it doesn't have like a pretty robust infrastructure or organization around it, um, if it's not always super competitive, it's probably a lifestyle sport. Um, so you've got, you know, even uh, like jogging could be a lifestyle sport, surfing, um, hacky sack, frisbee, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, things that are rock climbing or bouldering um, or would all be considered lifestyle sports. Um, so a lot of times it's um, where it's a sport where the end isn't always competitive. It's, it's done for other reasons or it plays a larger role in the, uh, the athlete's identity outside of when they're just competing it in it. Um, so for example, I think my um, upcoming Nash paper is sort of a good way to tie the idea of lifestyle sports and the social movement stuff together, um, which is about the um, American counterculture in the 1960s and 70s and the way that they used lifestyle sports, namely Frisbee, um, to sort of, they they took the Frisbee and they, um, you know, enmeshed it in with their political agenda and the way that they 
saw the world and tried to you know create their own world um and so they had their own version of sports mm. um to go along with that which you know was embodied by frisbee and studying something like frisbee it's kind of, it's kind of a hard thing to get your head around in terms of you know if you're studying soccer you can go to your match programs your results there's so much news coverage so much media coverage there's like video footage etc when you're studying like frisbee but especially this like very temporal politicized form of frisbee like where where do you go to get the definitive history of frisbee or to get sources on frisbee right so i guess that's one of the it's both a, a blessing and a curse of doing lifestyle sports is that not a ton has been written on it, mm. um, which means there's a lot for me to write on it. Um, but then, yes, it's, it is a little harder to find sources. Um, but a lot of times, newsreels and newspapers will um, at least make sort of oblique references to Frisbee. Um, They'll throw it around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there's um, sort of like industry publications, so mm. you can see when there were like big spikes when everyone was buying frisbees um and then sort of like other ways to get at the history like you could look at the history of plastics um and what that says about frisbees or you could look at um you know the coming at it from the other angle from looking at the histories of the political movements themselves um and sometimes you know how were, what were they doing in their leisure time mm. things like that and you might see some references there so it really forces you to Im- immediately go broad because what tends to happen in my own experience is that you'll go very in-depth on your very niche physical culture in Ireland, for, you know, for example, and then you're forced to branch out, whereas with the lifestyle sport, you're almost immediately starting from the broader sociocultural uh, like climate or atmosphere. Oh, yeah. No, you, you certainly have to cast a wide net mm. um, and... I think that maybe makes the process a little more labor intensive because it's just, you know, read a whole bunch and hope that you stumble upon something. Um, you know, so it's probably not the most um, efficient, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of like hours spent to like output. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's um, I think it's interesting. And I think hopefully someone thinks it's important. <laughs> <laughs> so who interested you in lifestyle sports because again like in irish sporting history it's very competitive dominant it's the irfu it's the ga it's the fai ifa cricket tennis there's not much scope for kind of lifestyle or it's not that there's much scope it's just people haven't really studied lifestyle sports yet so i'm wondering who brought you onto the topic sure so i I think um two things part of it um, Tolga Uzerchu, one of the faculty members here, um, he has written a lot on uh, surfing and bodybuilding. Um, so, you know, through him, I was sort of exposed mm-hmm. to some of the academic side of lifestyle sports. Um, but then also from my own personal sporting experience, um, I so I swam growing up, which was like very regimented and structured and whatnot. Um, but then I also played a lot of ultimate frisbee, which was the opposite of that yeah. um, and you know sometimes that was like way more fun than the sport that I was like more seriously invested in 
Um, and I think that was always something that was sort of in the back of my mind. Um, like as both like a practitioner of sport and as a scholar, like the tension between these two sort of ways to do sport. Yeah. And it's almost like the, as I say, it's the harder, but almost the more rewarding study because, you know, the games are like pick up with your friends are often the ones that have a tangible difference in day-to-day lives, but very hard to study from a historical perspective. So it's interesting with Frisbee where are saying you can study plastics, you can study, I presume like advertisements for totally the yeah. latest Frisbee. Is there a lot of innovations? <laughs> so in the they, they haven't studied? changed a ton since then. Interesting. Yeah, they haven't. The boomerang didn't. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I, I haven't thought about boomerangs, but I imagine there would be some, some, some overlap. Sort of like, comparative analysis to do there yeah um but no I, I think something that's important for for me when I'm thinking about what I want to be spending my time on is um the idea sort of like you mentioned that this is how most you know normal people interact with sport is mm. through pickup games or like more casual practice of sport you know it's not through like no one actually does pro sports it's like such a small sliver but we spend so much time you know researching um the more visible stuff and not much work is done on the rest of sport which is how you know the majority experience yeah Yeah. and am i right in thinking lifestyle sports is a relatively new concept in american sporting historiography like last decade and a half is that yeah um so Belinda Wheaton is, as far as I know, sort of like the, um, you know, authority on lifestyle sports. Mm. She's more of a sports sociologist. I don't know if she coined the term, but she's published tons of articles on it. Um, most, but yeah, all through like, you know, maybe like back to the late nineties, um, you find stuff and then, um, it picks up in the early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. And the journal of sporting history published something in the last two years on uh, lifestyle sports, but I think most of that is looking at it just from solely like California and like Venice Beach, you know, so it's yeah. surfing and that Venice, Venice Beach, Californian ideal, which is very different from the rest of the United States. So when you're looking at Frisbee, is it located in one small area or is it across the US? So it seems like... Um... I mean, the Frisbee was everywhere in the 1960s. It was like the hula hoop. It was, it was sort of like um, the, the rise of plastics made these things like just like totally, um, you know, you could find them all over the place. But I think um, Frisbee sort of as a political practice, it definitely overlaid with, you know, where the sort of liberal enclaves were in the U.S. at the time. So pretty much the same place they are now, like uh, New York, California, here in Austin. Mm. Um, if, you know, if there was a, um, a big group of young people, um, a big group of like counterculturists or hippies, um, that's sort of where the action was. So it's quite a generational thing as well. Like this is a younger pursuit. Is that? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so it, it seems like it's a lot of college kids and then like post-college, mm. um, so sort of like the immediate cohort after like the beatnik generation yeah, is, okay. is what you're looking at. And a super ignorant question, but when does plastics, I should know 
No, so yeah, I should so, have an um, overruff ballpark um, idea in my own head, but I don't. So when does plastic... Because that's so important for sporting... Totally. Entrepreneurship. So I'm just wondering, when does that come in and start to influence? So it's... Um, I think it gets actually invented at some point in the 30s, um, but it doesn't really become used in everyday life until the 50s and the 60s. Um, really? That late? Yeah. At which point it's, you know it's everywhere and there are so many uses and it sort of gave rise to this, you know, um, utopian thought about like, wow, we have this new material. Like think of all like the things we can do with it and all the problems we can solve. Um, obviously plastics have caused a lot of new problems, <laughs> but it's kind of reversed back to it. Now. Yeah. Like, I don't want any plastics. Um, but it was truly like a, a world changing discovery. Like mm. the, the things you could make with plastics, like, you know, just like look around this room, like, you know, that you could have never had or needed to be like heavy wood or metal yeah. and it would have made it a lot more expensive. Um, and Frisbees exist before plastics or they come to fruition? No, it's at that um, time. Yeah. The Frisbee, I think was patented in the fifties. Um, and the original Frisbee was plastic though. There are some sort of myths about the creation of the frisbee um, that suggest the earliest frisbees were like pie tins um, that people would toss back and forth. There wasn't like a you know Ellis esque mythical figure <laughs> who picked up a pie tin and threw it, and suddenly the sport of frisbee was born. So the the one um, sort of story that people often cite. Um, I love I love that frisbee has a founding myth. So <laughs> By next to Yale University, there was apparently frisbees pies, um, uh, okay. and when they threw it, sort of how like in golf you would yell for, you know, if uh they would say frisbee to like warn people that they were gonna get hit in the head with a pie tin, um, so that's apparently where the name came from. But I, I cannot. It's a it's a very it. nice story though, right? And it's interesting that even something like a frisbee has the mythical origin, you know, that you would get it like soccer or rugby or cricket you know so yeah. it's interesting that it extends to lifestyle sports as well yeah no i th- I think um probably for most sports that's like an important thing to if you can point to you know a, a person or a date or a place right, yeah. just to um you know have a history even if it's not correct like mm. something that you can sort of like lean back on um i think that's probably important for a lot of communities to have and is the 1960s like the countercultural period is that the heyday of frisbeeism in the united states or yeah i mean i think the the frisbee has sort of gotten more popular um so i i saw a, a stat recently that it's actually um purchased more often than footballs basketballs and baseballs combined um again i don't know how accurate that was but um <laughs> you're so skeptical of everyone's (laughs) um but um recently ultimate frisbee has sort of been growing um and it seems like more universities are competing in that and Mm -hmm. it's getting on tv so i think ultimate frisbee specifically is sort of on the rise now um but i think that's also like a very different practice and culture than the original frisbee throwers that were just like hanging out in the park and that's quite a nice distinction between lifestyle and competitive sports so frisbee is like even if you're playing a game of football actual football with your friends you know you're still taking score totally whereas frisbee like really was that lifestyle sport where it's you know it's it is active and it's social and you might have 
informal teams, you know, like throwing it over mm-hmm. and back. But it is very much a casual enterprise. And then that spills into competitive sport. Like it shows how fragile that nexus between lifestyle and competitive sport can be, I guess. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of a, a recurring trend in lifestyle sport that we keep saying is how sports, um, you know, if it's a lifestyle sport and it starts off very non-competitive, mm. it will over time become, you know, it will, um, much more competitive and it'll be commercialized and, you know, people try and make money off of these competitions. Um, so for example, uh, the X games are sort of, um, you know, example number one for that. Um, Mm. the same thing happened in surfing or like windboarding or things like that. Now they do races and like style competitions and things like that. Um, Frisbee, um, obviously like Frisbee golf and then ultimate Frisbee, um, or sort of how that happened. Um, but yeah, there's, aren't really any examples of a lifestyle sport that seems to be able to stay a lifestyle sport. It always seems to be, you know, you have this sort of idyllic beginning and then, you know, you have it for a couple decades and then, you know, it gets commercialized and it gets much more competitive and it loses that original ethos, whatever it was. It's interesting. It's almost like when enough people join into anything, at least some subsection of them wants to figure out who's the best. Uh, so it's interesting that as I can't think of anything like hockey sack maybe unless there's a hockey sack championship that I'm not aware of I, I wouldn't be surprised yeah well that's the <laughs> thing right and yeah even just how many times you can keep the ball like kick the ball like even there's informal yeah uh, competition going on so uh, like the main thing you've been working on the last few months has been frisbee as a lifestyle sport yes and then on the other I'm not even sure if it's, it's the same side of the lifestyle sport coin You've also been working on like physical culture and bodybuilding. So you've done a lot of great work on Dave Willoughby, who is probably unknown to most people in Ireland and Great Britain. Sure. So maybe give a brief overview of Willoughby, who he was and how you got interested in him. Because it's, even though it's bodybuilding and Frisbee, I think the way you've approached it, you've used the same sort of toolbox to explore the wider significance of these people. Yeah, um, so I, I guess if he's not well-known in Britain, that's because he's also not very well-known in the United States, um, which is sort of you know why I decided to, to write about him. Um, he, Willoughby, was a, uh, he was a lifter in the early 20s and a bodybuilder um, before there were really bodybuilding competitions, so he never really had the same acclaim that later lifters um, or physique men of his stature received but um, he did play a very important role in sort of the early organization of um, these bodybuilding leagues Um, he was sort of the main guy that was pushing for the standardization of the sport Mm. Um, you know before him it was a lot of those like circus strongmen or feats of strength and things like that Um, but they never really weighed the weights and so you know you would get these claims about you know lifts that would be done on the east coast um, and if you're on the west coast you know you don't see it you don't actually know that it happened Um, and so Willoughby was like you know all right we need judges we need scales so we can weigh these weights and we need standard lifts so we know that 
a competition in Chicago is the same as a competition in Philadelphia is the same as a competition in Los Angeles. Um, and so that all happened in the teens and the twenties and, um, largely because of him, we got a much more standardized, um, you know, set of rules, um, in American weightlifting than we had had previously. So he's one of those people that we can actually point out in the American context and be like, he helped that shift from, as you say, like weightlifting slash bodybuilding. Really, it is sort of in that lifestyle sport aesthetic and some of the ways it's being done mm-hmm. into just like raw competitive sport. So he's like one of those pivotal transitional figures. Totally. Um, yeah, no, he was played a huge role in the sort of sportification of, of the event. Um, and he, um, I guess uh, Britain was like way ahead of us um, in this trend. So he pretty much pointed at the, is it the BAWLA? Yeah. Um, and it was wonderfully. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it was Blala or Bala. 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 Um, yeah. And pretty much just like copy pasted their rules onto America. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was the one that was like, all right, like we need to do do this. And in in that, it's interesting that that shift from circus aesthetic, you know, slightly odd into competitive sport, almost immediately adds respectability to weightlifting and bodybuilding and in a making such a tenuous link with frisbee it's interesting that when i think of frisbee now and like ultimate frisbee i don't think counterculture you know so it's interesting that when you add a competitive element in it it's a lot easier to add kind of respectability and gravitas in a very conventional sense uh to the activity yeah, that's very um, stream of conscious. No, I, I hadn't really considered that before, but I think you're right on. Like there was definitely um, sort of aesthetic shifts in in frisbee. You know, they go from the barefoot, long hair hippies mm. um, in the 1960s to two decades later, everyone's in cleats and you've got matching jerseys and people work out. You know, in the gym so that they can be better on the field. Um, which is something you hadn't really seen before. And then you, I guess you get a, a very similar um, thing in weightlifting. You know, you don't really have the, the same, um, you know, outfits that they would wear to mm. perform um, and things like that. You get um, a much more... Um, a, it's kind of, yeah, it's much more like uni- uniform to yeah. not mix metaphors <laughs> there, but... But it's into like that sportification process is quite interesting and in what it does to perception, like outsider perceptions of it. So it's interesting with Willoughby, he is this really important transitional figure in lifestyle to, you know, to sport. I don't say actual sport, but to competitive sport. Hmm. And he gets forgotten about almost immediately. And I always got the sense that Willoughby's downfall is that bodybuilding and physical culture, even weightlifting, starts to be dominated by entrepreneurs so in weightlifting there's bob hoffman of york barbell he's the olympic weightlifting coach of the 40s and 50s but he's also selling barbells so he's very verbose and grandiose bodybuilding is dominated by joe weeder and ben weeder and they're very they're selling as well like they're organizing the competitions incredibly well but they're also selling products so there's a lot of marketing and smoke and mirrors going on with that but with Willoughby, he just seems to be the athlete turned organizer who doesn't actually get the respect he deserves maybe within that field because he's overshadowed by 
entrepreneurs rather than organizers. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. Um, and he did have some sort of uh, pretty intense beef with Joe Weider, um, which maybe played a role in this as well. But um, he, he certainly tried to um, be a bit of an entrepreneur and he, he had some things that he sold, um, not weights or anything, but um, ways to measure your body and things mm-hmm. like that. How close were you to what he decided was like the ideal body? Um, but it doesn't seem like any of his measuring tools really caught on in the way that um, you know any of Hoffman's or Weir's weights or, or supplements did mm. or magazines. Um, but um, yeah, his I mean he wrote pretty prodigiously um, in the forties and the thirties, and then um, he took a couple of decades off, and then again <laughs> in the sixties um, and seventies. But um, yeah, so it's just on. Um, this is my second last question of Roma. So it's just interesting. I'm wondering when you look at like lifestyle sports, how important is implicit, say, like advertising? So like with Frisbee, how important is it that it was advertised as like a countercultural thing? And with bodybuilding and weightlifting where Willoughby falls down is that, I think anyway, is that he's not as slick in his marketing. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering when it comes to lifestyle sports, like perception seems to be everything in terms of linking it to one group is that yeah no i i I think that's right on i think um a lot of times people you know if you're gonna get into frisbee um whether back then or now it's not just because oh like that looks like fun um i think sort of like everything that goes like the lifestyle that goes along with it is part of the draw it's um oh i want to be a part of that culture um so you know let me sort of take part in this activity um, mm. I think it's sort of it's because it's so tied up um, you can't really extricate one from the other and so people go because they want to be part of that larger culture yeah and it's I, I can't remember who says it in the journal of sport history um, like this it's the selling of the image as much as the activity itself yeah it's like it's frisbee but it's also counter cultural in the case of like bob hoffman and weightlifting it's you know it's weightlifting but you're also a good american and you're defeating the the communists like when willoughby never seemed to be able to fully get that link to the broader identity or lifestyle so that's probably a different story um <laughs> so last question what does the future hold now for ryan's next project is it more frisbee or is it or Willoughby or something completely different? Um, so maybe not Frisbee, but sort of, again, like temporarily related. I think the next thing that I'm interested in is looking at um, second wave feminism, which is, again, a sort of 60s, 70s movement. Um, and the way that, that was tied up in sport and, you know, we had Title IX right at the mm. same time and, and all that. Um, and so, um, yeah, there's some, some stuff there that I want to get into and see if I can keeping it as varied as always so i will end by thanking ryan again for sharing his time with me and also for being my ta yeah. this semester and helping me avoid any cultural potholes <laughs> um so i'll send it back to jeff in london and say thank you very much to ryan